as a target text, you can turn, if you want, to Malachi once again. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. I want to continue to capitalize on an image, on a vision of the scripture. And as usual, undivided concentration results in a guaranteed transformation by what we receive, what we hear, what we allow into the eyes of our hearts. This is Divine Missions Fanning Out, Part 2. I introduced the Divine Missions afresh a couple of weeks ago and started fanning out on them last week with the image of the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in his rays as Malachi brings forth. And we want to continue to fan out. And that means repetition and expansion on one of the most important subjects, if not the most important subject of our time, the divine missions. God's missions into history, into humanity, into creation. And it'll give you an idea about the kingdom that is coming and that is already in our midst. Let's take just a couple of moments of silent preparation. Making petitions that any of you have need of making this morning, and I know there are many. Sometimes this clears the deck of our hearts for a reception of the word. Giving our concerns to the Lord. For he cares very much for us and for every petition that's in your heart. He cares very much. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice based on your mercies. Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning, we turn to you for the shadowless revelation of your Son to be manifested in our midst. How urgent this is. May this congregation, as a forward-marching phalanx at this time in your plan, always be aware of the urgency and the immediacy of your word and our need for it. For we are here because the word is our link to life, the everlasting life that is in Christ Jesus. So grant us capacity now to receive the word of life that we may hold it forth to a lost generation. For we know that your plan is a universal return Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There are two divine missions. The divine missions are undertaken by divine persons. A divine person. By that, I mean one of the three persons of the triune God called the Trinity. A divine mission means that a divine person is sent by a person or persons of the divine Trinity into human history with the purpose of redeeming human history 
into humanity itself with the view of redeeming humanity and into the creation at large with the view to liberating creation from its present slavery to corruption, a slavery under which all creation groans to be delivered. And what we've been doing so far, and I want to capitalize on this image because I think it's very stark and very revealing, the two divine missions together, and they can be taken together because the second mission, that is the Holy Spirit, is an extension of the first mission, the mission of the Son of God, God the Son. For the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, and he is sent, was sent by Jesus Christ, as we find in John sixteen seven. These two divine missions together can be found in Malachi 4.2. The Greek translation finds it in 3.20. In the image of the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness, the Son of righteousness arising with healing in his wings, wings being poetic for the rays or the beams of the sun. The Son, S-U-N, is an image of the first mission the rays or the wings of the sun, the image of the second mission. And they are seen, of course, in their unified power. In the sun of righteousness arising, we have a depiction in the scripture of Jesus Christ in resurrection. And what we're striving for in this series is a depiction or a vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. There is no richer way to image this or to imagine this than the sun of righteousness its rays are inescapable by the entirety of the earth and so we've blended that malachi 4 2 and i think you should do this in, on your own if you wish because there's a lot of variations on this theme that God will give to you personally if you study the scriptures. I can't, I can't, I wish I could emphasize to young people and to the next generation, to my grandson's generation, the value and the wealth that comes from the study of the word of God and from the scriptures. This has been a wealth that is indescribable and it's almost frustrating because it's almost impossible to describe the wealth only by saying certain things like the psalmist said, one of your words is worth more to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And that's exactly how I treasure this word. This word is to be treasured and cherished. And the image of the son of righteousness is so striking that it struck me again, even early this morning and for a couple of hours. So in the Son of Righteousness arising in Malachi 4.2, we have a depiction of Jesus Christ in resurrection. But with the rays, we see his universal impact. Because blending this with Psalm 19.4 and 5, we have the Son pictured as a bridegroom coming out from the bridal chamber, all rejoicing. We have a picture of an athlete who is rejoicing in his upcoming race. And we have a picture of the sun going in its entire circuit. The athlete maintaining the intensity of the start all the way to the finish. 
so that the scripture says, after the sun has arisen, like a bridegroom fresh from the bridal chamber, fresh from the embrace of the bride, like an athlete trained, ready for a contest, for a race. He makes the circuit so that nothing in the whole world escapes the rays, the healing in the rays of the sun. And the healing is the cure. It's the solution to the problem of evil. It's salvation. The son of righteousness has arisen. His name, Jesus Christ, whom God declared to be his son by raising him from the dead in Romans 1.4. So in 19.4 and 5 of the psalm, in the psalms, the scripture says that in the heavens there is a tent for the sun. In the heavens there is a tent. The tent in the Greek word, the Greek translation is skenoma. And this means, looks like this in the English, skenoma. This is the same type of word used in John 1.14, the word who was eternal, the word who is God, the word who is divinity itself, by whom all things were made, without whom nothing was made that was made, became flesh and tented among us. He tented among us. He took on a human body, a tent, skenoma in the Greek. This word skenoma is used in Acts 7.46, for what Stephen called the dwelling place or skenoma, the tent for the God of Jacob. And the same word is used in Second Peter 1.13 for Simon Peter's words, words that I can relate to more and more as I get on in life. In Second Peter 1.13, he says, I consider it right as long as I am in this tent meaning this body, to keep waking you up with a reminder. Keep waking you up with a reminder. Ephesians 5.14, wake up, you sleepers, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's the sun of righteousness arising. So beyond what I said last week in Psalm 19.4-5, The scripture says that in the heavens, there is a tent for the sun. So tent of the sun refers to the incarnation, the first of the seven elements of the Christian or the Christ event, the incarnation of the eternal word. And this is important. The eternal word without whom nothing was made that was made. Nothing came into being unless it came into being through the word and by the word, all things were made by him and all things were made for him. Glory to God, says Paul in an ecstatic doxology. After he said, God has shut up all things in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. He said, glory to God from whom are all things through whom are all things, to whom all things return. The parable of the prodigal son, or as, Phil, you did in your power gospel, the returning son, 
which is a great name. The parable of the returning son in Luke 15 is ultimately the story of a universal return of all human humanity. Because all in Adam have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All return through Jesus Christ, the second Adam. The parable then, in fact, many of the parables are parables of the universal salvation of God. The leaven that a woman takes, three measures of yeast, meaning the triune God and its invasion of human history, hidden in the meal, the meal of history and creation and humanity, until the whole is leavened, until the whole is impacted by the triune measures, the the two divine missions that involve three divine persons. So the tent for the sun speaks of the incarnation, the human body of flesh, of the eternal word, without whom nothing was made that was made, and who became flesh, and tented among us, says the literal Greek, skenao, from that word skenoma, skenao. And we beheld his glory, glory that can only be that of God's only eternally begotten son, full of grace and truth. That means that he alone is the covenant fidelity that God requires of humankind. He alone fulfills it. The sun arising, of course, is a depiction of the resurrection of the son of God The healing in his beams is the universal gift of the Holy Spirit who is poured out on all flesh as we are learning in the midweek services, Wednesday and Thursday. So the beams that come from the sun is the spirit that the sun sends. The spirit that in John 7, 38 and 39 is depicted as a river of water that flows from the innermost being of Messiah. This is the spirit of the son. This is the spirit of Christ who is in you, says Romans 8, 9. The spirit of the son whom God has sent into our hearts crying out, Abba, Father. In Galatians 4, 6, the second divine mission. So the sun arising in Malachi 4, 2 is a depiction and in Psalm 19, 4 and 5 of the resurrection of the son of God and the healing in his beams is the universal gift of the Holy Spirit of grace sent by the Father and the Son. For nothing escapes the heat. Read that as the healing. Read that as the salvation effect of the Son as it makes its circuit. Psalm 19 puts the Son in an image coming out like a bridegroom from the bridal chamber. And as an athlete who rejoices in running the race, his circuit, the course that the sun takes, of course, poetically speaking, it's the earth that turns, not the sun that circuits. But the circuit of the sun poetically is like an athlete starting and finishing each lap with the same invincible intensity. You know what this pictures? Jesus Christ, the starter and the finisher of faithfulness. Looking unto Jesus, the starter of the race, and the finisher of the race of faithfulness, who, because of the joy set before him. That's a picture of Psalm 19, the son like an athlete rejoicing in the circuit before him. 
in the course before him. I think that image in Hebrews 12, 2 comes from Psalm 19. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, thinking very little of the shame part of it, and is now set down at the right hand of God. This is what this picture is of. And Brian, you've done a wonderful job with that passage as I've been listening to your tape of June Seventh. So our two freshly minted pastors are busy. They're still busy a year later. And that means that this Thursday, don't forget, June 22nd, will be a Phil Henry Power Gospel Night here. If you haven't come to one of those, you should. It's not only a time of richness in the word, but of fellowship. And breaks are taken in between the messages so people can get together in fellowship. It's a great time. So, our two freshly minted pastors are stirring up the gift. So keep praying for them. It was almost a year ago. The sun arising then is the resurrection. The rays, the universal gift of the spirit. The circuit of the sun is like that of an athlete starting and finishing each lap with the same invincible intensity. It's been said it's not how you start, but how you finish. The Lord started strong and finished even stronger and said at the end of his course, finished. Tetelestai, which means also relates to Psalm 2231, that that finished work is something of a finished creation, an accomplished creation, something that was not only done, but something that was made through the athlete's agony on the cross, like the woman in labor pains. The labor was exerted for the creation of a new creation, which would overwhelm entirely the old and take its place. So the circuit is like that of an athlete starting and finishing each lap with the same invincible intensity so that nothing escapes the heat and the healing of this life-giving and life-sustaining rays of the sun. This image makes us look unto Jesus, the starter and finisher of faithfulness, where the athletic metaphor continues, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and who has now taken his place at the right side of God the Father in the highest of heavens, the happiest father on Father's Day is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has also given to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter echoes Paul's words in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God, even our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who caused us to be born again into an absolute confident hope by his resurrection from the dead. Ephesians 1.3, 1 Peter 1.3. This is an incentive that we need to run the race before us with joy. There is a race before us. Some of us are coming toward the finish. Some of us see the finish line. Some of us are in the home stretch. Some of us are just beginning. But by God's grace, you'll have the same intensity in the finishing as you have in the beginning. This is the incentive that we need to run the race before us and to finish a course by participating in Jesus' own faithfulness. 
not our faithfulness. Now, moving into another gear here, this, this is going to show you some of the ways that the Spirit has guided me in discovering the things that I have been recently teaching. And almost every time I study and teach, I thank God that he allowed me to live this long to discover these things. And I don't know how much time he'll give me, but I want to, I see these things open up every single day, more and more, every day, a little bit more, every day, a little bit more, every day. J. Lewis Martin, as I've said and referred to many times in his rightly renowned commentary on Galatians, showed that Paul's gospel involves, as I've said to you, the divine invasion of the present evil age. A divine invasion into the present evil age. If you don't think the age is evil, you haven't ever compared it against the age to come. If you haven't looked and seen that the age is evil, you haven't watched the news. In the occupation with finding how many people like us and trying to get more and more to do so, we forget that the times are perilous and that Christ died for our sins in order to rescue us from this present evil age in Galatians 1.4. If you're choosing a profession and want to be liked, don't become a preacher. Unless you want to toe the line of a denomination and be liked by everybody, don't become a preacher. Don't be guided by the Holy Spirit into all truth. Don't communicate it in a generation that has learned to love fantasy more than reality. Because you won't be liked by everybody. Now, he said, and rightly so, and I believe it, Paul's gospel is the account of a divine invasion into the, res- to the present age to rescue. And the rescue is for all humanity. The rescue is for all creation. The rescue is for all of human history, even to redeem it from its present roller coaster of ups and downs. When John the Baptist came preaching, he said, the high places will be brought low. The low places will be brought up. He pictured the redemption of history from its roller coaster of progress and decline. The redeeming of time itself. Divine invasion into human history, into the creation, into time itself. I'm fanning out on this. By becoming a scribe of the kingdom of heavens, as Jesus said in Matthew thirteen fifty two, the scribe of the kingdom of the heavens, or the preacher of the kingdom, is like a person who goes to a treasure chest and pulls out old treasures and new. The new treasure is the divine invasion into human history, that image. The old treasure is the divine missions that I first discovered when I was reading Bernard Lonergan, in his two famous books called The Triune God Systematics and The Triune God Doctrines, followed up by R.M. Duran's book on the divine missions. And they've been sitting in my soul and incubating for three or four years. And so they're just coming out. It's an old thing from the treasure chest I'm pulling out today. So added, I will fan out on Martin's idea 
of a divine mission or divine or divine invasion and say that that divine invasion is divided into two waves or two divine missions. Both of these are found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, in verse 4, to redeem us from the law. That's us as all creation, as we found out this past Wednesday and Thursday, all of humanity. And in 4.6, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. What's he do there? He pours out the love of God into our hearts. As Romans 5.5 says, that's the second mission. So there were two waves or two divine missions. And I like to call it D-Day. The day of the salvific invasion of God into the evil age in two waves or two divine missions. I was pleased to be able to speak a brief eulogy for Major Jack Rickard on D-Day, on the celebration of D-Day on June 6th. And D-Day originally was a vast invasion of Allied forces which eventually broke the control of Nazi Germany and liberated Europe and the world from that brutal, oppressive power. The divine invasion, undertaken in two divine missions, initiates and completes the breaking of the power of sin itself. To Paul, sin is an enact committed, but a power that enslaves. He almost always uses it in the singular. We're going to be coming to that when we hit Romans a little harder. Romans 4, 5, and 6, and 7. We might even intrigue you with the possibility that in Romans 7, the I that keeps being used there, the I, the I, the frustrated I, is actually Adam himself. The possibility. We'll see it. The divine invasion undertaken in two missions successfully completes the breaking of the power of sin, of death, and of the hijacked Torah, which gives strength to sin. Wake up sleepers and arise from the dead and the victory wrought by God in Christ will shine on you. The son of righteousness has arisen with healing in his wings and now is the day of salvation. Righteousness, the son of righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Does it mean conformity to the law? Does it mean being morally upright? Righteousness in the Hebrew text is tzedakah. And one of the meanings of the terms is salvation or deliverance. Righteousness means salvation or deliverance. It's what God does, what he makes, what he accomplishes for the ungodly. God glorifies and glories in the fact that he justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. This is the great scandal of the cross. He does not glorify ungodliness like the evil age does, but he does justify the ungodly. That's why I'm here. I call myself a graced pagan. I'm a graced out pagan. So were the Galatians. They were Celts. Graced out Irishman, you could say. And may I say from the inside, Irishmen are some of the weirdest pagans, but we're grateful to be graced out. 
One of the meanings of this term of salvation is therefore tzedakah is deliverance or that which God does or makes. You can see that in Isaiah 46, 12. Or more importantly in Psalm 22, 31 in which the scripture says they shall tell of his righteousness but the Tanakh says his righteousness is his beneficence, his kindness and grace and generosity to people yet to be born for he has acted. The French call it dans sa fidélité, what God has done in his faithfulness in Psalm 22, 31. So in the Hebrew text, righteousness, sedekah, relates to what God has made or to what God has done. Asa is the Greek word or the Hebrew word. Therefore, relating to deliverance from the power of sin and death and the making of a new creation. All of this goes into the words, it is finished, spoken by Jesus Christ, arguably not hollered out by him, but spoken quietly by him because the only one that reports this word is John, the beloved disciple, who is close enough to rest his head on Jesus' chest and close enough to the cross to hear that word. The eternal word, speak the word, it has been made. It has been done. The mission is accomplished. The universal saving significance of Jesus Christ is arising on this generation, shining on the generations to come. That's what's happening right here, right now. That's what's happening invisibly. And we don't look to the things that are visible. If you do, it's quite depressing. We look at things that are not seen, things that are eternal, as 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says. I like Revelation 21 where it ended. And the one who is seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And he said, write, these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. He said to me. It is finished. John, the writer of the Revelation, hears the enthroned God say, it is done. Just as John, the author of the gospel, heard Jesus say, it is finished. And the throne is the cross. The beginning of the enthronement of the Christ is his being lifted up on the cross. Because that's the image of the love of Yahweh. The love of God. Crucified God. Now, I wasn't going to do this, but I, I was reading yesterday. I thought in my mind for a week now, a weird, a weird German name kept coming to my mind, Ethelbert Stauffer. Ethelbert Stauffer. And I kept thinking, I know I've read him, and I know I read him when I was doing Revelation, and I, found, I looked around, and the book was right there. And I got 6,000 books in my study. It's going to cause the whole third floor to collapse someday. But there it was, Christian Theology by Ethelbert Stauffer, written in 1956 when I was a mere lad of five. Jim reminds me he was two. So I told Jim, you know, Stauffer said he got his inspiration from a two-year-old Irish prodigy in America. I won't tell you how Jim replied. I'll leave that up to him to say it. You can only imagine. So I asked the question, what has come into being? What has been done? The answer is the new creation. 
which involves all creation, has come into being. The end is the beginning in the scripture. The first verse in the Bible is a declaration of what God does in the end. Because the word in the beginning is NRK. This is one of the most startling things to me. It's NRK. And that in the Greek text is, looks like this. N and then A-R-C-H-E. N-R-K. And the word R-K, Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus Christ is He-R-K-E. He is the beginning. So if we interpret Genesis 1-1 by that, then we say in the beginning or in Christ, God created the heavens and the earth. The whole universe is created in Christ. That's not just the beginning. That's the end game. Because God plans to summarize everything up in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why he descended in Ephesians 4, 8, and 9 before he ascended, creating the great via victory. Victory. He descended first that he might also ascend so that he can fill up everything with himself. The new universe is made of Christ. Not made by him only, but made of him. And we are in him now. And the body of Christ is Christ corporate. It's the beginning of this entire new creation. In the beginning, in Christ, God created the heavens and earth. On this very subject, Ethelbert Stauffer, and I went right, it's amazing how the Spirit kind of put my head in this book. In his New Testament theology, from Macmillan, way back in 1956, page 224 and 25, he said this, Christ is the firstborn of all creation, and in him were all things created. Therefore, all things have been created unto him. Christ is the ground of all being, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Therefore, he is the reconciler of all. He ties the universal creation by Jesus Christ into the necessity of a universal reconciliation by Jesus Christ. And earlier... I went back a little bit and read, Stauffer bluntly asked a question that Paul answers. He asked the question that I haven't quite asked yet. Hey, Paul, are you a universalist? But he asked it this way. Stauffer bluntly says, he asked a question that Paul answers. He says, but will the divine deliverance include all? Question mark. Paul answers... Yes. Okay, that's the end of the series. Goodbye. God's irresistible grace, he goes on to say, and will is destined to overcome the most obdurate opposition. None is to remain outside. He gives several scripture verses. In the first place, double predestination appears to be God's final purpose. But in the end, it reveals itself as God's plan for history, a plan whose aim and outcome is the total victory of the divine purpose of salvation. Once, he says, Paul had written, quote, the scripture hath shut up all things under sin 
that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, and I translate that as by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, may be given to them that believe, Galatians 3.22. But he's dealing with Romans now, and he says, but now the last reservation has disappeared. God has shut up all unto disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. Romans 11.32. The universalism of the divine creativity requires and guarantees the divine salvation. And then he says, of him and through him and unto him are all things. The principle of the Gloria Dei, or glory to God, requires and guarantees the final victory of the divine and universal mercy. To him be the glory forever. So what is there left after the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ? What's left but worship, doxology, the glorification of God. And I heard all of creation glorifying God. I heard the voice of Pankatisma, the whole universal creation, praising God for his redemption. Revelation 5.13, going beyond this, the meaning of God's righteousness, meaning his act of deliverance, is a revolutionary new way to interpret the all-important epistle of Paul to the Romans. The definition of righteousness as God's act of deliverance in Christ transforms the entire construal of Romans. It's crucial to the construal of Romans because the gospel is the apocalyptic revelation of the righteousness of God, which means the act of deliverance. The whole gospel is about An act of deliverance, an act of God in Christ for all creation. That's the whole gospel. When the gospel was preached in advance to Abraham, it was very simple. In you, in your seed, which is Christ, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. An unconditional promise with a universal horizon. Once you've seen this horizon, you can't say that you haven't seen it. It would be putting a light under a bushel. There are pastors that have seen this, but you know what keeps them from saying it? Their salaries. Because they are bound to a denominational code. Their loyalty is directed toward men in one way or another, or to a human mentor. And God takes away all those affiliations, and God takes away all those human mentors. You're left with God. (laughs) In the day that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high And lifted up, said Isaiah. Now Isaiah was an ambassador for the high and lifted up one. And so, being liberated from human affiliation in terms of our primary loyalty, you see this universal horizon. You have to proclaim it. And it changes everything. It changes your inward being. It changes your whole life. For if one died for all, then all died, and therefore the love of Christ begins to constrain us and overpower us for all mankind. So Stauffer, back in 56, when I was only five, called Paul. On the way in, I saw a construction advertisement. It said, call Paul. Is that somebody from here?
Going beyond this then, righteousness means the act of God in Christ. The meaning of healing in Malachi 4.2, healing in his wings. The meaning of healing, which is in the beaming rays of the Son of Righteousness, the risen Christ, and which shine from the face of the Son of Man, as we see in Revelation 1.15 and 2 Corinthians 4.4. I like what Paul said, God who said light shine in darkness, where he lit up the whole earth has shone into my heart, he said, revealing to me the light of the glory of the knowledge of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. When Saul of Tarsus, the vicious murderer, the one who would have, had he been permitted, would have destroyed the new creation by destroying the church, the greatest criminal in history, saw the face of Jesus Christ And the judgment that came to him in seeing that face was a transformation by grace of evil into the supreme good. That's the face of Jesus Christ. If you have looked into that face in the mirror of the word and that light has shone into your heart, it has to shine out. You can't put a bushel basket over it and keep it in there. It's impossible. My, your word, said Jeremiah, was like a furnace, a fire burning inside me. And I could not stay. I could not hold back. Woe unto me, Paul said, if I don't preach the gospel. Woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. So someone said, why did you become a preacher? Because woe unto me if I don't preach. Period, over and out. It's not something you select like you select a vocation. It's a call that God makes on your life. And you can run. You can run. Jonah has nothing on me. I've jumped over the ship and got swallowed by a whale. You would not believe. I was in there longer than three days and three nights. But it threw me up. I tried to hide in the evil age. And I couldn't hide. The rays of the sun kept finding me, whether it was in a jungle or under the water or wherever it was I tried to run. I couldn't run fast enough or hard enough. He finally caught up. So why do you preach, you say? Because woe unto me if I don't. It's that simple. Now, this healing in his wings refers to a cure, but it refers to a divine solution to the problem of evil. And regarding that solution, I want to take you further back into my study where I read two things. There were 31 paragraphs when I finally got through that book, Insight, which was an amazing apprenticeship in reality. It was unbelievable, the book Insight by Lonergan. On toward the end, on page 718, he gives 31 paragraphs, 31 points about the problem of evil and its solution. He doesn't mention any scriptures. He's using reason alone. And the first two of these read like this. The first two of 31 points. It's the only book I ever read where you'd read a paragraph and it said, 27thly, 28thly, 29thly. I don't even know if he said 30thly. I don't know, but there were 31. The first two went like this. And that's when the Holy Spirit took me by the lapels and pulled me right up short and said, listen. First, he said, then the solution will be one, O-N-E, one. For there is one God. 
one world order and one problem that is both individual and social. Secondly, he said, the solution will be universally accessible and permanent. For the problem is not restricted to men of a particular class or of a particular time. And the solution has to meet the problem. That's when the seed was sown for what I'm teaching you now. These are only the first two of 31 points that he makes on the subject of the solution to the problem of evil. The question that arose in my mind and that I now know the spirit of truth put in there was if the solution has to be universally accessible, will it be universally accepted? That was the question that got me on this quest where I am today. What comes immediately to mind now, but didn't then, took a while to creep up on me, to the answer to my question, will it be universally accepted? might come to your mind too is Philippians 2 9 to 11 so ultimately Jesus parable of the prodigal or the returning son is the story of a universal homecoming specifically regarding Philippians 2 9 to 11 it says at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven angelic and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My answer is found in that passage. What is universally accessible will be universally accepted because of God's irresistible grace. And here comes Mr. Stauffer again. Ethelbert. One of the worst things we did as kids, we made fun of people's names. That's a terrible thing to do. We can imagine my name, Nap. Hey, take a nap. Where's your knapsack? You know, know, all this stuff. But we used to torture people with that. Now, if I had a guy named Ethelbert in my crowd, he would may not have survived a year with my guys that I grew up with in Vermont. Ethelbert. Hey, Ethel. Bert. You know. I've already got names for most of the pirates. Osuna, I call him Osuna Tabata when he comes up the back because he's, you know, never mind. So here comes Stauffer again. I won't make fun of his name. I'll meet him someday. He said, there is no limiting clause to the affirmation of universality. He's talking now about Philippians 2, 9 to 11. There's no limiting clause to the affirmation of universality. No threatening tone. None hold aloof, he says. All bend the knee, angels in heaven, men on earth, and shades of the underworld. Philippians 3.21, he cites. Even they join without exception in the chorus of those who confess Christ. We hear of no destruction of demonic powers, as in 1 Corinthians 15.24 and Romans 16.20. Here, listen carefully to this because this is one of the most phenomenal things that we're going to build on. Here, subjection means as much as overcoming. An overcoming of demonic antagonism in the will to the glory 
of God the Father. And I'll stop there and say this. There's two ways to defeat an enemy. One, you defeat his power. Two, you defeat his will. God has defeated my will, my willfulness, and therefore I am a willing servant of his most of the time. He will defeat the will of the enemy to resist. He's already defeated the power of death. He's already defeated the power of sin. He will, ref- he will soon, shortly, place Satan under your feet, he said, meaning he will defeat even the demonic willfulness and overcome it. So then he says, the God who cut Rahab in pieces, not Rahab the harlot, but Rahab the sea monster, the God who cut Rahab in pieces is glorious, but the concluding triumph of the divine glory is the overcoming of satanic willpower. In Philippians 2.11, the doxological ideas of Romans 11.36 have controlled the movement throughout. And the movement of thought in Colossians 1.15 and following now significantly turns in the same way into Christological form. So speaking of the solution to the problem of evil or the cure offered by the cross, there's a reason why Jesus Christ, why God is called the great physician because he has the cure for what ails the evil age itself. The creation which groans and screams under its subjection and slavery to the corruption that's in the world through lust. And the ultimate thing that God prohibits through the law is covetousness. And covetousness is simply the will of the creature to assert itself against the creator and against one's neighbor. This disappears in love. This disappears in love. That's coming up. It's going to get immensely practical pretty soon. So in closing, speaking of the solution of the problem evil, I'll go back to where we started. The cure offered by the great physician for that disease is called healing in Malachi 4.2. For that which is in the rays of the beams of the sun of righteousness. What is in the wings of the sun or the rays or the beams of the risen sun of righteousness? Healing. And healing is a metaphor for salvific cure. The cure. The problem's solution is in the rays of the risen sun. Everything attempts to escape it now. But you can't escape it. You can't escape the rays of the sun. The Greek word is iasis, and it's used in Luke 13:32 where Jesus is threatened by Herod and the Pharisees tried to intimidate him and they said, "Hey, you better be careful. You know, Herod has a hit out on you. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said, really? Well, you go back and tell that old fox that I'm going to do cures, and he meant miraculous healings, for the next few days. And then on the third day, I'm going to be perfected. He was predicting his resurrection. He said, I know I'm going to die, but it won't be by the hands of Herod. No man takes my life. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I have the power to take it back again. The son of righteousness. So in Luke 13, 32, he says, I'm going to do or perform cures, miraculous acts of healing. 
Then we have a strange little image to round this off with, the little calves. You will go out like little calves that were kept in little stalls and hobbled by your feet by fasteners. The fasteners will be broken. You'll be let loose from the stalls, and you'll be like calves, little calves, jumping, leaping in the meadow with absolute joy and rejoicing. The little calves here in Malachi 3.20 or Malachi 4.2, depending on your translation, leap about because they will have been released or unfastened from being confined in small stalls. This is a prediction of the liberation of all of creation from the bondage of corruption brought about by sin and death and even by the law as it was hijacked by sin, which leads to death. We are going to find in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin being death is for the whole of the human race even as the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, is for the whole human race. Take that on your Romans road. So the sun is pictured as having wings, poetic for the rays or the beams or the emanation of the sun. And as the patristic theologians said, the restoration of all things, which are spoken by all the prophets in Acts 3.21, in the end, will be purely a miracle of God's grace. So, Father, we thank you today. On this Father's Day, we think of you, Father. Our first thought is to think of you. For you have sent your Son to redeem us. And he has redeemed us. And you have sent the spirit of the son into our hearts. Who cries out Abba. We call you father. We do it automatically. We do it in a sense of familiarity with you. And intimacy with you. Because the spirit has been sent into our hearts. Even as no man can call Jesus Lord. Except by the spirit. No man. No person. No man or woman can call you father except for the spirit that's in us, the spirit of the Son.